Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. We bring you today's episode in partnership with One Project, which is a nonprofit initiative working globally with communities to design, implement, and scale new forms of governance and economics that are equitable, ecological, and effective. The focus of this episode, along with the one from earlier this month with Vandana Shiva and several others to follow over the coming months, is to elevate themes of the recent book, The New Possible, through a series of dialogues on global systems change. For more information about The One Project and The New Possible book, please check out the links in the show notes for this episode. In the conversation that follows, Andrew Schwartz talks with Bridget Mugamba. Bridget is a social scientist with over 15 years of work experience with NGOs in management, strategic planning, budgeting, fundraising, and gender mainstreaming. She's an expert in policy analysis, advocacy, capacity building, and the generation and dissemination of information on food sovereignty. She serves as the program coordinator for the Alliance for Food Sovereignty Africa, where she oversees a variety of programming covering policy advocacy on seed sovereignty, community land rights, climate justice, and consumer action. In this episode, Bridget and Andrew discuss agroecology as an alternative paradigm for feeding Africa while promoting the long-term well-being of people on the planet. And now, here's Andrew and Bridget. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the EcoCiv podcast. I'm Andrew Schwartz, co-founder and vice president of EcoCiv, and I'm honored to be joined today by Bridget Mugamba. She serves as program coordinator for AFSA, the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa, and uh, which is an alliance of around 40 member networks active in over 50 countries with, I believe, an estimated member outreach of over 200 million people, which is absolutely incredible. Um, that impact is, is exciting to me. And today we'll be talking about agroecology as an alternative paradigm that can feed, uh, feed Africa while promoting the long-term well-being of people on the planet. So Bridget, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for having me today. Yeah, our pleasure. So much of your work, as I just uh, suggested, involves promoting this notion of uh, this, this practice, this frame, this perspective of agroecology. Now on the AFSA website, it's described as the antithesis of industrial, corporate-driven, monoculture-based agriculture systems. So before we get into explaining what agroecology is, I'm just wondering if you could shed light on the problem that AFSA sees that you see with the industrial corporate-driven model of, of farming and how agroecology is different. Yes, Andrew, I think that's a good starting point because um, they're coming together of AFSA, like you mentioned, AFSA is an alliance of uh, many organizations, many networks across the continent covering up to 50 countries. And the, the coming together after one of the critical issues that, uh, that drove us to come together is the realization of um, the path that African agriculture seems to be taking. And of course, which is uh, mainly focused on um, industrial agriculture. And of course, when, when you hear industrialization, everyone thinks of development, it's not a bad idea. But when you look at it in the perspective of agriculture and the kind of agriculture that we are proposing as industrial agriculture, then you see where the dangers are for Africa. 
So what we are seeing developing now in Africa is um, one, there is a more uh, focus on increasing production, production, production. So we are losing the aspects of food beyond quantities. We are looking at producing more maize, uh, producing more cowpeas, producing more beans, producing more bananas. So in the process, we are losing a lot of other aspects that, that I'll later talk to in terms of uh, food sovereignty. So industrial agriculture, of course, uh, as you're trying to increase production, there are issues around um, increasing um, inputs, chemical inputs, increasing use of hybrids, uh, then promoting the genetically modified organisms agenda. All these are technologies that have, we have been proven to be detrimental, one to uh, nutritional food, uh, to farmers' livelihoods, uh, to um, the quality of food itself in terms of the culture, aspects of food in terms of the, um, the nutritional value of food, but also impacting on, on uh, people's health in some, in some aspects. So of course, also industrial agriculture is looking at uh, eliminating the majority of the food producers who are the small-scale food producers, because it looks at how do we um, utilize land maximally. And what that means is that those that are producing on small uh, pieces of land should go out of agriculture, then let's have um, probably one farmer, one large-scale farmer that can produce maize on 100 acres, on 200 acres, on even 50 acres, you know, that's still large-scale, and get these many other small-scale farmers out of, out of um, the practice. So, of course, we know the value of small-scale farmers to African agriculture, to food security, to food nutrition. We know uh, what it means to livelihoods. We know what it means to communities being together. So we see that industrial agriculture has tentacles of so many other negative impacts that um, it's putting onto African agriculture, African culture, African um, society, the environment, and you know a number of other you know detrimental issues that are coming up that yeah we can discuss as we move forward. Absolutely. And you mentioned things like the production of bananas and beans. And am I correct in understanding that these are primary under the um, this sort of industrial model? These uh, items are actually being grown primarily for the purpose of export, um, not for feeding Africa, so that it's more of an, um, an economic driven agriculture rather than one that's um, primarily about feeding the people and increasing healthy soil. Is that is that right? Yeah, you're, you're, it's right, because when you look at, um, for example, some of, of, of the reports like um, the FAO, the African Food and Nutrition Report 2019, I think 2020, you see the increased food exports that Africa, imports rather, that Africa has. We're importing more than 70% of our food, which is, and yet we are exporting most of what we produce. So, but when you look at who is exporting this food, it is not the small-scale farmers. It is the big, you know, uh, corporate companies that are now owning large chunks of land and producing for export. So it is not that we are increasing production and uh, securing our own food security, but rather increasing production for export. So when you look at uh, the kind of foods that are being promoted, for example, for mass production like maize, you know, 
and most of it is is uh, being exported. Even when you go beyond uh, the crop farming, when you go, for example, to fisheries, the kind of fisheries that are now coming into Africa, large-scale fishing, fishing for exports. So most of this increasing production is for purposes of export. And then what is happening in Africa is that now we are importing, you know, uh, food, which is a shame uh, considering that Africa has, I mean, over... Um, 60% of, of uh, arable land. So it does not make sense that we are importing food and we're exporting the nutritious food that we are producing here. Yeah, it's it's just that the sort of, I don't know, I part of me wants to say oddity and part of me wants to say stupidity of our, of our capitalist-driven economic system that is basically requiring uh, continents like Africa to export uh, good, you know, foods and, and and things that are actually needed at home. Um, so then, in order to feed people, you have to do the importing, and of course, that looks great on paper for increasing uh, market activity and raising GDP. But um, should that really be our goal? We can get into that into another time. Uh, it's obviously a big conversation, but I think it does seem like. Um, Part of what uh, you're doing and part of what, what OFSA is doing is really rethinking from the ground up what agriculture looks like in an African context. And if I understand correctly, your approach is sort of threefold. It includes changing policy. It includes changing mindsets and, and changing narratives in order to influence practices. Um, so let's talk about changing narratives and mindsets. How is agroecology uh, framing a different story or in a different worldview from that of this modern industrial food system? Yeah, um, what we are doing as, uh, as APSA, as the Food Sovereignty Movement, yes, um, we, what we are advancing is agroecology. But I think what is very uh, critical for, for the listeners to know is that we are not looking at food from a point of view of um, a commodity, you know, that is what is happening now. Food is being commodified. Right. It's more of a commodity. But we are looking at food from the basic of what it is meant for, for consumption. And then the other thing is looking at the people as the center, at the center of food. So, of course, the people who eat the food, those are the citizens. Sometimes they are called consumers. Though consumers also has a sound to it that is really not right, you know. So we are looking at the people as being at the center of food. So they determine um, what kind of food do we want to produce? What kind of food do we want to eat? Before we think about selling it and getting the money, it has to start with the, with the people themselves. So now what, what we are trying to do right now, or what, what you see happening um, from, from, um, from, from mainly from you know, the big corporate companies is that there is a sale of narrative because one, they have the finances, so they can influence the media. And the media, I mean the mainstream media, but also social media. If you look at the adverts, for example, if you just randomly came to, to Uganda, or even Kenya or Tanzania and met a young person and asked them, um, where is your, what is your dream place to have a meal? You know, probably they'll say one of the, the, the fast foods that are popular, you know fast food restaurants, really? maybe from the yeah. U.S. that are opening up here. Yes, because it has been portrayed, the narrative in the media portrays the fast foods 
you know, the imported foods uh, that we buy in supermarkets as what is nutritious, as what is a status food, because then it defines your status, you know. These are foods for the educated people. These are foods for the, you know, rich people, the middle class. So the narrative is so strong in the media and it is quite undermined that uh, a lot of people do not realize how much impact it has. And even when you go to um, to, 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 to um, different spaces, you know, where issues of food are being discussed, issues of uh, land, climate, the narrative, for example, the narrative around land, you know, that uh, there is a lot of underutilized land in Africa, so we need to utilize it to grow food, for export elsewhere, to, to you know, for other purposes, we need to rent it out, we need to invite investors. So there is a lot of narrative all over the entire agriculture sector. And this narrative is driving consumption habits, is driving public financing, because a lot of public financing, I know African governments um, have committed, I think in um, 2013, uh, more recently, 2014, to uh, put up to 10%, you know, uh, to the agriculture sector, public financing, which of course very, is very minimal, but that is the list that we have committed. But very few African governments have met that 10%. And even where they have met it, mm. when you look at it critically, it's mainly administrative costs. But when you, 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 create, when you analyze the agricultural budgets, for example, I'll take an example of Uganda where I'm based, most of that funding is going to um, the so-called you know, industrial agriculture. That is what the funding is going for. So it is, and what influences that is the narrative that, that uh, you know, that uh, chemical fertilizers work better, the advertisements that go around, that, um, you know, hybrids are faster producing, they are cleaner, they are, you know. So it is, there is a lot of actions and policy directions and financing decisions that have made based on this strong narrative. We also see it systematically in um, global conferences, you know, global conferences. We see this narrative pushed strongly in trade negotiations. We see this narrative pushed strongly by, you know, by Western governments, by, for example, the US, by the EU. So these strong narratives are really deciding a lot in terms of the direction for, for African agriculture. So as AFSA, one of the things we are doing, one, is um, working around citizen mobilization. And this citizen mobilization involves um, uh, a number of, of, of aspects. Of course, linking into that, we do, uh, for example, we, are, we have in the last, um, since 2019, we launched a project to develop an African food policy. And what we are doing, uh, we have gone so far in 24 African countries, held dialogues with citizens from the ground up to try and understand what kind of food policy we want, what we want to see in an ideal food policy for Africa. So we are getting citizen voices to be able to get to um, the decision makers at the national level, but also at the African Union to set this other kind of um, provisions. For example, we want in a food policy. This is an ideal um, food secure Africa. What so to begin to change that narrative to let Africans know that uh, what we knew, what we are practicing 
is not backward, it is not wrong, it is actually, you know, what is the ideal? So, so we are we are we are doing um, uh, quite uh, quite a bit of, of of that, but also we are directly engaging with the um, decision makers, with the policy makers, to create platforms for them to interact with citizens. You know, to get a different narrative, to get the reality beyond the big offices and the conferences of what is happening with the. With African agriculture, with uh, with the citizens, and be able to to relate it as they as they um, work on different uh, policies, but also um, on the other hand, we are d- doing a bit of the practical um, work with the food producers. Uh, for example, we have uh, since uh, five years now, we've started a program on uh, improving soil health. So this program involves practical uh, training uh, food producers and uh, you know, giving them practical tips, practical skills on how they can improve their soil through um, organic ways, through use of biological inputs. So we see that you know, there is a, a bit of change beginning to happen um, among the few that, that we've been able to reach so far. So fascinating. I even the fact that um, ne- because of this sort of dominant narrative that uh, the modern industrial agriculture movement is is putting forth, people are now coming to see or have come to see sort of this modern industrial way of farming, um, large machinery, large monocultures, uh, annual crops, um, and, and like major chemical inputs as the sort of that's the contemporary right way of doing farming so that small local polycultures uh, that increase biodiversity and regenerate soil is backward thinking. Um, I, I hadn't actually thought of it in that terms yet, but that's so interesting because then there's a major mind shift, uh, mindset sort of shift that's needed in order to get to convince people that, wait a second, no, 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 no. Just because big companies said this is the right way to do it in order to make them more money doesn't mean it's the right way to do it to feed uh, ourselves. Because um, when you talked about policy um, and the sort of international trade and those sorts of things, I was struck by the fact that you're saying that various countries in Africa are um, basically funding uh, these sort of large industrial farming projects, but that's actually not going to feed Africans, it's going to export food in order to put more money in the pockets of those big corporations. And it's not actually hiring local farmers, it's putting them out of work. Um, and it's actually not regenerating the soil, uh, but it's actually degrading it. So it's just it's just fascinating. So let's go back to policy then. <laughs> what are some of the policies uh, throughout Africa that you see impeding progress toward food sovereignty and how can policy be leveraged to reshape food systems at the local level? Yeah, when um, when you look at the um, Africa's vision for agriculture, which is mainly um, which is mainly encompassed in the um, com- the Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Development Program (CADA). You know? When you look, when you analyze the entire CADA, which has, uh, you know, which has taken 10 years, then uh, has been uh, reviewed, 
or is being reviewed. When you look at the entire vision of, of um, CADAP, which has Africa's, you know, agriculture vision, it's about getting Africa's agriculture to that level of, um, you know, industrialized agriculture. When you look at all the details of the, um, you know, the, the strategies, you know, where we, where we feel we should put strength in terms of advancing agriculture, it's moving towards industrial agriculture. Now, CADAP, CADAP goes down to the regional level in terms of regional economic communities or blocks, then it goes down to the national level for the countries to domesticate you know, uh, what, is, uh, what is given as a provision for CADAP. So when you look at the entire continent in its entirety, even individual countries themselves, the entire vision is about industrialization of agriculture. So the challenge is that industrialization of agriculture is focusing on large-scale farming. Large-scale farming meaning that um, the 70% small-scale farmers, you know, that have part of agriculture, that are feeding Africa, that have, you know, been part of maintaining the system, caring for the soils, and feeding us for all these years are going to be pushed out, you know, of, of agriculture to cater for the large-scale farmers. And when you look at also part of our visions is to increase investment in agriculture. Now, the kind of investments that we are attracting in Africa, the kind of investments that we are talking about are foreign investments. Even when you look at our investment agreements, our investment laws, they are really catering for foreign investments, foreign investors, there are concessions for them. For example, giving them land, you know, uh, access to cheap land or free land at that because they are coming to, you know, industrialize and develop agriculture sector. So give them free land. But what is happening, for example, I can give you an example of Uganda where I am and I can speak very comfortably. What is happening where these investors are getting land, then it gets to, um, they are planting sugarcane, for example, you know, no one is eating sugarcane for... <laughs> For daily meal, so they are planting, our, our children uh, are. I think no, I'm just kidding. You know, yeah. you know and so they are planting sugarcane. They are planting, um, you know, foreign tree species that are not even good for the soil. They are that maybe they are doing a bit of maize, you know, for export. So there is ultimately it is it is not even you know the policies are favoring that kind of investment, they are favoring industrial agriculture, but even the concessions that are given are not in any way benefiting, you know, uh, benefiting Africans. So the CADAP is expected to end, I think, in about uh, three or four years before it is, uh, the goals are reviewed and all that. But we've not seen any results, you know, we've not seen any results for Africa. We have not, uh, because there's a lot of, um, Gaps there, Africans, many of them didn't participate in the process of developing this policy. They do not understand it. There is no finance for it at that, you know, there's no financing for it. So when you look at our agricultural policy, honestly, it is, it is more out there than in here for Africans, you know. There is less right. appreciation or focus inwardly for what you know what is what what it means for Africans what the Africans want it is more outward looking how how do we attract 
um, foreign investment, how do we attract foreign funding for African agriculture? And of course, funding comes with strings attached. It comes with um, bringing my funding for, for this specific um, project. I'm bringing my funding for this specific program. And to bring my funding, I need this amount of land. And, you know, so it is our, our agricultural policy, honestly, is looking outward and not inward. That is why AFSA in uh, 2018 made the resolution that we need to come up with an African food policy. And we launched that process in 2019. It has been going on 2019, 2020, and also this year, 2021, until 2023. And what I am happy to, to also share with you is that the African Union has come on board. We are partnering awesome. with them. Yes, so we are, we are collaborating with them. We recently had uh, an experts meeting at uh, the African Union a few weeks back, but that is after we've had so many processes at the country level, dialogues, research, review of policies. So now we are, we are working together, the African Union, we have agreed to collaborate on this process and ultimately come up with a food policy. The other issue that uh, also that drove us to come up with the African food policy is the realization of the incoherency within um, agricultural policy across the continent. So you will find there is, a, for example, you could look at the climate change policy and uh, it's, it's talking about nature-based solutions and the need to conserve the environment. Then you look at the um, agricultural sector investment plan and it's talking about, you know, we need to, to, to industrialize, we need to increase use of uh, chemical fertilizers, chemical inputs. So there is a lot of incoherence and it comes from the national level to, to, to up to the continental level. So that realization of that incoherence is also another reason as to why um, AFSA has advanced that, that process to, to develop an African food policy. And uh, like I mentioned, I'm glad to, to, to note that the African Union has come on board and we are working together on that um, specific intervention or initiative. Yeah. That is exciting news. Thank you for sharing that. I'm yeah. I something that you were saying also made me remember that. Um, so agroecology, um, it effectively combines indigenous knowledge with sort of the cutting edge of science, right? So it's sort of combining the past with the future, so to speak. And when policies and and Afri across Africa for agriculture policies, when they um, are effectively abandoning that indigenous knowledge, it seems like it's also an abandonment of indigenous culture in a way. Um, I'm curious if you could speak to the, the implications of, well, I'll give you some options. What is the impact of this sort of industrial policies on um, indigenous culture throughout Africa? Um, and then if you also wanna say a little bit about some examples of, of what this combining of indigenous knowledge with cutting edge science looks like in practice. Yeah, it is, um, well, if I can speak about um, the impact, probably I'll touch on both through as, as I respond. Um, I speak about the, the impact of uh, you know, the push for industrial agriculture, the impact on indigenous knowledge. One, I think 
when when you when you when you um, analyze, you know, food and agriculture in the if I may use the word typical or African, you know, understanding or setting, it is food is is it's beyond food and agriculture is beyond like I shared before. It's beyond just um, the products, you know, that comes out of food. There are so right. many other um, complexities around food. There, it is a web. By the time you get to what you define as food, there are so many issues that go on there. For example, um, just the process of food production. There is um, there are cultural issues around who selects the seeds. Uh, there are seeds that are really um, kept in the custody of women. There are seeds that where men are, are the ones that are responsible for them. There are also specific seeds where children are the ones that are, you know, are, are responsible for them. Then there are cultural issues around that. There are cultural issues around, around uh, production of food, around uh, preparation of food, around specific foods. There are so many uh, cultural issues that are attached there are foods that have different sexes. This is male, this is female. There are foods that are prepared for weddings. There are foods that are prepared for funerals. There are foods that are prepared for, you know, um, traditional wedding ceremonies. There are foods that are prepared at a birth of a child, a male child, a female child. So there is a lot of um, cultural issues, a lot of knowledge around food. And of course, it could be taken lightly that these are just cultural issues, but there are also other benefits that they that they think through. You know, issues of nutrition. For example, how is this food prepared in a way that, yeah, you know, you don't lose the nutritional value. How do you prepare it? Do you add little water? Do you add more water? Do you put salt? Don't you put? You know, there is a lot of information there in that that we are losing. So if you come and, uh, for example, say we should have one variety of bananas, you know promoted when you have 40 varieties with different functions, with different um, cultural attachments, then you're losing a lot of knowledge. You're losing a lot of, uh, you know, cultural um, attachments, you know, with the food, because each food has a different attachment to it, a different you know, respect to it. So there is a lot of knowledge that is lost there in but also in terms of um, to speak about that, uh, you know that what we call the day-to-day agricultural problems, issues of pests. There is a reason as to why agriculture is practiced the way it was, you know, to control pests, to maintain the soil, and all that is indigenous knowledge because it's not documented in a scientific journal. Then um, it is not recognized. It's not recognized because no one talks about it. Um, so if, if I have a work preserving the soil that I've not written down, but I've been managing and practicing, then um, it, is, it can't be compared to, you know, the chemical fertilizers that have all these percentages written on the tins, you know, that is this percentage, then you get this percentage of output, then you, you know, so of course, there is all that that, uh, that, that we are losing along the way. This has been super helpful so far, and I want to to free us up to uh, to dream a little bit. And uh, let's imagine a world. Let's say the year twenty thirty, not too far mm-hmm. away, um, yeah. but we may only have a decade to uh, to make a difference. So let's imagine that 
that you have successfully influenced policies and implemented solutions for food sovereignty in Africa. Congratulations, by the way. 2030, food sovereignty in Africa. Great work. What does it look like? Um, how is food grown? How is it distributed? Who owns the farmland? Who works on it? What? How do you manage seeds? Describe this this uh, future for me. Well, well, uh, twenty thirty would be a good uh, yeah. It would be a good year. Uh, it's it's just a few years, few nine years, I guess. Away. Um, well, this I think for me. Um, I'll go back to, to, to one of the, the first things I mentioned. For me, food is um, about the people. It's about the people. Of course, the people in the sense that the people who consume it, the people who produce it. So I think one of the ideal situations I would see is that food um, is, is it's a source of dignity you know, to people. The people who consume it, who, who produce it, have their dignity in the process of consuming it, in the process of uh, producing it. And the dignity, I mean, um, one, they have the right to make decisions on the kind of food they want to eat. So I, I, it wouldn't be a situation where we see food security, sec, uh, food security has been achieved, for example, through food aid, you know? I, I don't feel that is dignified enough. Or that food security has been achieved by uh, giving people food that they might not desire, but they need just to stay alive. You know? So I would see a situation where people have access to the food they need in terms of uh, nutrition, in terms of um, their own cultural um, attachments. For example, in Uganda, we have, I think also in a few other countries, we have um, clans. So I have a clan and the food, the, the, the animal that is my clan, I do not eat that clan, that animal. So I cannot, I do not eat it. I should not, uh, you know, be in any way put in a situation where I have to eat it. So I need to be able to make that decision to what I eat, what I don't eat. Also, that dignity I'm talking about is, um, you know, if, if, um, if if there is if there is um I want to give an example I could give an example for example in Uganda when um, the fishermen including the fisherwomen when they do uh, the fishing they sell off the feed for export so what stays uh, at home for consumption or for the fishermen are the bones practically the bones the bones and the tail and the head. So we, we sell off, and ironically, what stays is what is called fillet, but the fillet is exported. So you find that the fishermen who actually go to the lake are consuming, you know, the leftovers of, of the fish because ultimately it's just about, it is being made about the money, the money, the money. So we need that kind of dignity. But also what I would want to see ideally is the markets, you know, is the markets. Uh, the development, I would love to see local markets developed. Local markets where the food producers themselves can be able to sell off what um, is an excess for them to be able to, you know, to have some money in their pockets. Because what we see now is that um, traders, you know, that have export companies will go into the gardens and buy at very cheap prices, very low prices, you know, 
obscene prices, they'll buy your food or sometimes gardens, and the farmers will still stay poor. So you will have no money to buy food. You'll also have sold off that food because you want to get food. You want to get money to you know, access other services, health, education, and the little you're left with will not buy that kind of balanced uh, you know, uh, diet you need. So of course, I would love to see um, where there are local markets developed, uh, where there are fair trade agreements, you know, uh, probably that will not be 2030, but fair trade agreements, which would mean that um, the exports, it's not just about exporting raw materials and importing, you know, um, or not importing, and, you know, in, the, in, in another way, having food dumped into Africa. Yeah. So I'd love to see, um, you know, fair trade agreements if, if, uh, if they can happen. And I think the other, the other realization, and I think for me that is that is possible. Unfortunately, it's something that we've seen in um, in this COVID nineteen uh, with the pandemic, because it has forced many of our countries to look inwards. You know, where there was a time where borders were closed, and you know, so local markets, ironically, were they, they were seemingly booming because now we had to buy food locally. You couldn't go to the restaurant, you could, I mean, to the supermarkets. You had to buy food at the market, which is 50 or 100 meters away from you. So we saw a boost of that. And um, AFSA did a research in about uh, 18 African countries just to understand um, how food, the, the impact of COVID on uh, food and agriculture. And that is one of the surprising findings that, that we got that, you know, local markets now was seemingly, you know, given up because now we are, yes, we are not, ex we are not importing food, we are not moving, so we are forced to really boost these local markets, and we saw yeah. that the, the importance of, um, of local markets. I think maybe the last thing I could also talk about is, or the second, that's the, the finance, you know, I would love to see financing going to agroecology. Because we all know the benefits of agroecology. It's only that the money that is coming, mainly from uh, the Western governments to fund our budgets, it's not a priority. It's not a priority. They're funding the uh, industry-driven agriculture. So if agroecology is, right now we are doing a lot, of, there's a lot of agriculture going on. Farmers are doing a lot of work with very little financing. So just imagine if we just had a boost, you know, to support research and agroecology, to support local markets, I think would really have um, an ideal um, situation for food security and uh, and agriculture in Africa. That's wonderful. Yeah, the silver lining of COVID is an interesting one, um, where you see those benefits and. You know, talking about food sovereignty, I'd, I'd hate to think that uh, Western governments like the United States are um, using food aid uh, as a, I don't know, basically, well, as Vandana Shiva has said, using food as a weapon um, and yeah. keeping um, African countries uh, dependent on external imports uh, for their, yeah. uh, their basic needs. Um, I'd hate to think that that's the case, but it's hard to not uh, see that writing on the wall. I, I know we're coming up on, on our time here. I, I did want to talk about a few more things, if, that, if that's okay. 
Yeah. Um, so you just laid out the sort of dream of uh, your your vision for what uh, food sovereignty would look like in Africa. And I'm curious, can you name some of the major obstacles in realizing that vision of food sovereignty in Africa? And then what are some of the key leverage points for change? Yeah, yeah I, 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 um, I guess some of the obstacles have, in one or the other, hinted on them uh, in terms of, of, of course, the narrative, which is the biggest challenge we have because it touches on so many other aspects. I've, I've of course, talked about the issues of the finance, which is also a huge obstacle. There's a lot of finance that is going to, you know, to other, to, to industrial agricultural projects, you know, programs like Agra, unless finance going to agroecology. Most, if you compare the planning that is happening, you know, that is going to agroecology forecast, um initiatives and what is going to industrial agriculture, I, I don't think you, it's even comparable because industrial agriculture has government funding, it has uh, funding of foundations and corporations, you know, big foundations and corporations. So of course that is that is um, that is a huge um, obstacle. Um, I, I I think also the other. Um, obstacle that, that, uh, that in a way also relates to what I've talked about is the influence, the Western influence, the external influence that we have in our um, policies. Because of, of course, there is the finance that is dangled. There is a lot of uh, external influence in how policies are being made uh, on the African continent. When you look at, uh, for example, policies to do with the plant variety protection, uh, when you look at the seed harmonization laws that are happening in um, within Africa, you look at funders, you know, from the EU, for example, that are coming in to support such uh, initiatives. So there is a lot of external influence that is hindering um, the advancement of food sovereignty because then they promote the interests of um, of corporations from from, from the West. Um, so, but but in terms of in terms of um, I think what we can leverage on right now for me I feel it still goes back to the people one um, we have I believe now a growing food sovereignty movement I think on the continent uh, Africa but also um, the movement is growing even beyond in uh, India for example there's a brand movement for food sovereignty and we are also getting a bit of support from uh, other continents i mean from, for example from the us there are few uh, groups that are coming in to advance um, this agenda so for me i feel ultimately changing uh, changing the, the, the this train you know that seems to be on one track will only happen if the people uh, come together and demand, you know, and demand from their governments. Because I do not, we could, we could do all the research, we could write all the documents, we could put out all the letters, but ultimately the people themselves have to, to have a voice, you know, to use these platforms to come up and tell their governments that this is what we want. This is uh, the food sovereignty we want. So for me, that is the biggest point of leverage that we'll have. The other is around um, if funders can, you know, um, if funders that are putting most of their 
their monies to 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 the industrial agriculture can divert some of that funding to agroecology because agroecology probably doesn't need uh, the if we had the big monies that have been put for example into agri right I think be very far with with advancing you know agroecology so we need the financing that is not um, that is not something that I can hide because there is research that also happens within agriculture. We need centers, uh, training centers to come up, for example, to be able to, to train uh, food producers on soil management, on uh, you know, a number of other agroecological practices. So we need uh, financing to happen. We need financing to move people around, to move people together, to be able to just create platforms to share this information and, and build uh, the, the movement. Yeah. Wonderful. I, you've already started to touch on on my last question here, but mm-hmm. the challenges that we're talking about uh, in order to achieve food sovereignty in Africa—they're really complex. It's widespread challenges. Yet there are emerging opportunities and new developments. Um, and mm-hmm. in the midst of all of this, I wonder what gives you hope. Mm. Yeah, I think what, what gives me hope is um, one, just that the, 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 there is a lot on the African continent. There is a lot on the African continent that can leverage. In terms of resources, for example, we have, uh, we have the, the land, you know, to produce the food that we desire to produce. We have um, a young population. You know, we have a young population that one can invent, do a lot of innovations uh, with the right resources, but also provides the you know, right um, source of, of labor. We have the food, we have the diversity, we still have a lot of diversity of foods, um, you know, in terms of, of, for example, different varieties, we still have a lot of that uh, on the continent. We have, we have of course, the... Um, I've talked about the natural resources, the biodiversity, the young people that that on the, the, the continent, the growing movement, you know, of uh, people that are beginning to to advocate and appreciate why we need agroecology and joining the food uh, sovereignty movement. But of course, also the positive changes that we begin to see. For example, the initiative that we've, we've collaborated with the African Union. It gives hope that uh, we might, at some point, you know, uh, move to the direction that we want to move. But also the realization now with with this pandemic that you know we need to have a more out inward looking strategy uh, to deal with the challenges of food security. I think is is uh, beginning to open up a bit of of doors for discussion between governments and and. Um, their citizens. But also another issue I could talk about is um, around, I think, the growing research and uh, realization of the impacts and the harms of um, industrial agriculture, issues around uh, using chemical inputs, you know, the impact on uh, air quality, water quality, soil health, issues around uh, diseases, biodiversity destruction. There is a lot of research that is coming out, scientific research which is mostly appreciated, that is coming out, you know, uh, to show that the negative impacts of industrial agriculture. 
So even with all the funding that is going into industrial agriculture, we do not see a lot of, uh, we don't see the positive results that are coming out. So this realization of the impact, the growing realization, I think it gives me hope that it is going on, it's industrial agriculture is on a downward curve in terms of, um, in terms of uh, what they can put out there as, you know, as positive impact, impacts. So it gives me hope that at some point we'll come to a realization and an agreement that it has failed, it cannot feed Africa, and we need to go back to, to, uh, to agroecology ultimately. Yeah, the this, the new story. The story is changing, uh, which is exciting. There's momentum there. I, is there anything else you'd like to say before we conclude? Well, I I, I feel like um, I, I don't know what else I could add, but maybe what what I can still tackle is around um, the narrative. You know, I talked quite a bit about the narrative on, on industrial agriculture, but there's a lot of uh, thinking that that that. When you talk about agroecology, then you talk about um, just small-scale traditional agriculture. You know? So maybe my parting point would be just to let um, our listeners know that agroecology is beyond that. It's not just the small-scale farmers, because I've talked about it. Agroecology can be practiced on a large scale. So it is not either agroecology or increasing production. No, it can be both. You can still produce massively, but uh, through agroecology. But also the other issue, I think, for me that I need to emphasize is that we need to look at food um, starting from the people, you know. The people have to be at the center of any discussion of food. And uh, so it has to do with the dignity of the people. It has to do with their livelihoods. It has to do with our cultures. It has to do with the safety in terms of health safety, but also the you know, security, the food security, the in terms of um, so my thing, my 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 point is that everything should start with the people. It shouldn't start with you know export markets, GDP calculations, and all that. It starts with the people. How happy are they? How are they? Um, you know, uh, how how is our agenda as being as human beings being promoted in terms of uh, looking at food? Fantastic. You've heard it here, folks. Uh, This is how to feed Africa. And this is how to feed the world. Agroecology uh, as this uh, alternative paradigm. Bridget, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I'm continually amazed by the opportunity to connect with brilliant leaders and activists like yourself from around the world to be sitting in my garage in uh, in my home in uh, Salem, Oregon, uh, and then connect with you all the way over in Uganda. It's just so much fun. And thank you uh, for taking the time. For those who are listening, who want to learn more about Bridget and, and the work of AFSA, uh, please check out the website, afsaafrica.org. That's A-F-S-A, Africa, uh, F-R-I-C-A-C-A.org. Uh, and please just consider supporting their amazing work um, because we're, it's going to take all of us working together to change the world. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Let's all go agroecology.